0: Chapter 2, Predestination and the Sovereignty of God. As we struggle through the doctrine of predestination, we must start with a clear understanding of what the word means. Here, we encounter difficulties immediately. Our definition is often colored by our doctrine. We might hope that if we turn to a neutral source for our definition, a source like Webster's Dictionary... We will escape such prejudice, no such luck, or should I say, no such providence. Look at these entries in Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary. Predestinate. Destined, fated, or determined beforehand, to foreordain to an earthly or eternal lot or destiny by divine decree. Predestination, the doctrine that God... In consequence of his foreknowledge of all events, infallibly guides those who are destined for salvation. Predestined to destine, decree, determine, appoint, or settle beforehand. I am not sure how much we can learn from these dictionary definitions other than that Noah Webster must have been a Lutheran. What we can glean, however, is that predestination has something to do. With the relationship of our ultimate destination, and that something is done about that destination by somebody before we arrive there. The pre of predestination refers to time. Webster speaks of beforehand. Destiny refers to the place we are going, as we see in the normal use of the word destination. When I call my travel agent to book a flight, the question is soon raised. What is your destination? Sometimes the question is put more simply, where are you going? Our destination is the place where we are going. In theology it returns to one it refers to one of two places. Either we are going to heaven or we are going to hell. In either case we cannot cancel the trip. God gives us but two final options. One or the other is our final destination. Even Roman Catholicism, which has another place beyond the grave, Purgatory, views that as an intermediate stop along the way. There, travelers ride the local, while Protestants prefer the express route. What predestination means, in its most elementary form, is that our final destination, heaven or hell, is decided by God not only before we get there, but before we are even born. It teaches that our ultimate destiny is in the hands of God. Another way of saying it is this. From all eternity, before we ever live, God decided to save some members of the human race and to let the rest of the human race perish. God made a choice. He chose some individuals to be saved unto everlasting blessedness in heaven and others he chose to pass over, to allow them to follow the consequences of their sins into eternal torment in hell. This is a hard saying, no matter how we approach it. We wonder, do our individual lives have any bearing on God's decision? Even though God makes his choice before we are born, he still knows everything about our lives before we live them. Does he take that prior knowledge of us into account when he makes his decision? How we answer that last question will determine whether our view of predestination is reformed or not. Remember, we we stated earlier that virtually all churches have some doctrine of predestination. Most churches agree that God's decision is made before we are born. The issue then rests upon the question, on what basis does God make that decision? Before we set out to answer that, we must clarify one other point. Frequently, people think about predestination with respect to everyday questions about traffic accidents and the like. They wonder whether God decreed that the Yankees win the World Series or whether the, the tree fell on their car by divine edict. Even insurance contracts have clauses that refer to acts of God. Questions such as these are normally treated in theology under the broader heading of providence. Our study focuses on predestination in the narrow sense, restricting it to the ultimate question of predestined salvation or damnation, what we call election and reprobation. The other questions are both interesting and important, but they fall beyond the scope of this book. The Sovereignty of God In most discussions about predestination, there is great concern about protecting the dignity and freedom of man. But we must also observe the crucial importance of the sovereignty of God. Though God is not a creature, he is personal with supreme dignity and supreme freedom. We are aware of the ticklish problems surrounding the relationship between God's sovereignty and human freedom. We must also be aware of the close relationship between God's sovereignty and God's freedom. The freedom of a sovereign is always greater than the freedom of his subjects. When we speak of divine sovereignty... We are speaking about God's authority and about God's power. As sovereign, God is the supreme authority of heaven and earth. All other authority is lesser authority. Any other authority that exists in the universe is derived from and dependent upon God's authority. All other forms of authority exist either by God's command or by God's permission. The word authority contains within itself the word author. God is the author of all things over which he has authority. He created the universe. He owns the universe. His ownership gives him certain rights. He may do with his universe what is pleasing to his holy will. Likewise, all power in the universe flows from the power of God. All power in this universe is subordinate to him. Even Satan is powerless without God's sovereign permission to act. Christianity is not dualism. We do not believe in two ultimate equal powers locked in an eternal struggle for supremacy. If Satan were equal to God, we would have no confidence, no hope of good triumphing over evil. We would be destined to an eternal standoff between two equal and opposing forces. Satan is a creature. He is evil to be sure, but even his evil is subject to the sovereignty of God, as is our own evil. God's authority is ultimate. His power is omnipotent. He is sovereign. One of my duties as a seminary professor is to teach the theology of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession has been the central creedal document of, for Historic Presbyterianism. It sets forth the classical doctrines of the Presbyterian Church. Once, while teaching this course, I announced to my evening class that the following week we would study the section of the Confession dealing with predestination. Since the evening class was open to the public, my students rushed to invite their friends for the juicy discussion. The next week, the classroom was packed with students and guests. I began the class by reading the opening lines from chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. I stopped reading at that point. I asked, is there anyone in this room who does not believe the words that I just read? A multitude of hands went up. I then asked, Are there any convinced atheists in the room? No hands were raised. I then said something outrageous. Everyone who raised his hand to the first question should also have raised his hand to the second question. A chorus of groans and protests met my statement. How could I accuse someone of atheism for not believing that God foreordains whatever comes to pass? Those who protested these words were not denying the existence of God. They were not protesting against Christianity. They were protesting against Calvinism. I tried to explain to the the class that the idea that God foreordains whatever comes to pass is not an idea unique to Calvinism. It isn't even unique to Christianity. It is simply a tenet of theism a necessary tenet of theism. That God in some sense foreordains whatever comes to pass is a necessary result of his sovereignty. In itself, it does not plead for Calvinism. It only declares that God is absolutely sovereign over his creation. God can foreordain things in different ways, but everything that happens must at least happen by his permission. If he permits something, then he must decide to allow it. If he decides to allow something, then in a sense, he is foreordaining it. Who among Christians would argue that God cannot stop something in this world from happening? If God so desires, he has the power to stop the whole world. To say that God foreordains all that comes to pass is simply to say that God is sovereign over his entire creation. If something could come to pass apart from his sovereign permission, then that which came to pass would frustrate his sovereignty. If God refused to permit something to happen, and it happened anyway, then whatever caused it to happen would have more authority and power than God himself. If there is any part of creation outside of God's sovereignty, then God is simply not sovereign. If God is not sovereign, then God is not God. If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Perhaps that one maverick molecule will lay waste all the grand and glorious plans that God has made and promised to us. If a grain of sand in the kidney of Oliver Cromwell changed the course of English history, so our maverick molecule could change the course of all redemption history. Maybe that one molecule will be the thing that prevents Christ from returning. We've heard the story, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the war was lost. I remember my distress when I heard that Bill Vukovich, the greatest car driver of his era, was killed in a crash in the Indianapolis 500. The cause was later isolated in the failure ...of a cotter pin that cost ten cents. Bill Vukovich had amazing control of race cars. He was a magnificent driver. However, he was not sovereign. A part worth only a dime cost him his life. God doesn't have to worry about ten-cent cotter pins wrecking his plans. There are no maverick molecules running around loose. God is sovereign... God is God. My students began to see that divine sovereignty is not an issue peculiar to Calvinism or even to Christianity. Without sovereignty, God cannot be God. If we reject divine sovereignty, then we must embrace atheism. This is the problem we all face. We must hold tightly to God's sovereignty, yet we must do it in such a way so as not to violate human freedom. At this point, I should do for you what I did for my students in the evening class. Finish the statement from the Westminster Confession. The whole statement reads as follows. God from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin... Nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. Nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Note that, while it affirms God's sovereignty over all things, the Confession also asserts that God does not do evil or violate human freedom. Human freedom and evil are under God's sovereignty. God's Sovereignty and the Problem of Evil Surely the most difficult question of all is how evil can coexist with a God who is both altogether holy and altogether sovereign. I am afraid that most Christians do not realize the profound severity of this problem. Skeptics have called this issue the Achilles' heel of Christianity. I vividly remember the first time I felt the pain of this thorny problem. I was a freshman in college and had been a Christian for only a few weeks. I was playing ping pong in the lounge of the men's dormitory when in the middle of a volley the thought struck me. If God is totally righteous, how could he have created a universe where evil is present? If all things come from God, doesn't evil come from him as well? Then, as now, I realized that evil was a problem for the sovereignty of God. Did evil come into the world against God's sovereign will? If so, then he is not absolutely sovereign. If not, then we must conclude that in some sense, even evil is foreordained by God. For years, I sought the answer to this problem, scouring the works of theologians and philosophers, i found some clever attempts at resolving the problem, but as yet have never found a deeply satisfying answer. The most common solution we hear for this dilemma is a simple reference to man's free will. We hear such statements as, Evil came into the world by man's free will. Man is the author of sin, not God. Surely that statement squares with the biblical account of the origin of sin. We know that man was created with a free will, and that man freely chose to sin. It was not God who committed sin, it was man. The problem, is, the problem still persists, however. From where did man ever gain the slightest inclination to sin? If he was created with a desire for sin, then a shadow is cast on the integrity of the Creator. If he was created with no desire for sin, then we must ask where that desire came from. The mystery of sin is tied to our understanding of free will, man's state in creation, and God's sovereignty. The question of free will is so vital to our understanding of predestination that we will devote an, entirely, an entire chapter to the subject. Until then, we will restrict our study to the question of man's first sin. How could Adam and Eve fall? They were created good. We might suggest that their problem was the craftiness of Satan. Satan beguiled them. He tricked them into eating the forbidden fruit We might suppose that the serpent was so slick that he utterly and completely fooled our original parents. Such an explanation suffers from several problems. If Adam and Eve did not realize what they were doing, if they were utterly fooled, then the sin would have been all Satan's. But the Bible makes it clear that in spite of his craftiness, the serpent spoke directly in challenge to the commandment of God. Adam and Eve had heard God's issue God issue his prohibition and warning. They heard Satan contradict God. The decision was squarely before them. They could not appeal to Satan's trickery to excuse them. Even if Satan not only fooled but forced Adam and Eve to sin, we are still not free of our dilemma. If they could have rightfully said, the devil made us do it, we would still face the problem of the devil's sin. Where did the devil come from? How did he manage to fall from goodness? Whether we are speaking of the fall of man or the fall of Satan, we still are dealing with the problem of good creatures becoming evil. Again, we hear the easy explanation that evil came through the creature's free will. Free will is a good thing. That God gave us free will does not cast blame on him. In creation, man was given the ability to sin and an ability not to sin. He chose to sin. The question is, why? Herein lies the problem. Before a person can commit an act of sin, he must first have a desire to perform that act. The Bible tells us that evil actions flow from evil desires. But the presence of an evil desire is already sin. We sin because we are sinners. We were born with a sin nature. We are fallen creatures. But Adam and Eve were not created fallen. They had no sin nature. They were good creatures with a free will. Yet they chose to sin. Why? I don't know. Nor have I found anyone yet who does know. In spite of this excruciating problem, we still must affirm that God is not the author of sin. The Bible does not reveal the answers to all our questions. It does reveal the nature and character of God. One thing is absolutely unthinkable, that God could be the author or doer of sin. But this chapter is about God's sovereignty. We are still left with the question that, given the fact of human sin how does it relate to God's sovereignty? If it is true that in some sense God foreordains everything that comes to pass, then it follows with no doubt that God must have foreordained the entrance of sin into the world. That is not to say that God forced it to happen or that he imposed evil upon his creation. All that means is that God must have decided to allow it to happen. If he did not allow it to happen, then it could not have happened, or else he is not sovereign. We know that God is sovereign because we know that God is God. Therefore, we must conclude that God foreordained sin. What else can we conclude? We must conclude that God's decision to allow sin to enter the world was a good decision. This is not to say that our sin is really a good thing, but merely that God's allowing us to do sin, which is evil, is a good thing. God's allowing evil is good, but the evil he allows is still evil. God's involvement in all this is perfectly righteous. Our involvement in it is wicked. The fact that God decided to allow us to sin does not absolve us from our responsibility for sin. A frequent objection we hear is that if God knew in advance that we were going to sin, why did he create us in the first place? One philosopher stated the problem this way. If God knew we would sin but could not stop it, then he is neither omnipotent nor sovereign. If he could stop it but chose not to, then he is neither loving nor benevolent. By this approach, God is made to look bad no matter how we answer the question. We must assume that God knew in advance that man would fall. We also must assume that he could have intervened to stop it. Or he could have chosen not to create us at all. We grant all those hypothetical possibilities. Bottom line. We know that he knew we would fall and that he went ahead and created us anyway. Why does that mean he is unloving? He also knew in advance that he was going to implement a plan of redemption for his fallen creation that would include a perfect manifestation of his justice and a perfect expression of his love and mercy. It was certainly loving of God to predestine the salvation of his people those the Bible calls his elect or chosen ones. It is the non-elect that are the problem. If some people are not elected unto salvation, then it would seem that God is not all that loving toward them. For them, it seems that it would have been more loving of God not to have allowed them to be born. That may indeed be the case, but we must ask the really tough question. Is there any reason that a righteous God ought to be loving toward a creature who hates him and rebels constantly against his divine authority and holiness? The objection raised by the philosopher implies that God owes his love to sinful creatures. That is, The unspoken assumption is that God is obligated to be gracious to sinners. What the philosopher overlooks is that if grace is obligated, it is no longer grace. The very essence of grace is that it is undeserved. God always reserves the right to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. God may owe people justice, but never Mercy. It is important to point out, once again, that these problems arise for all Christians who believe in a sovereign God. These questions are not unique to a particular view of predestination. People argue that God is loving enough to provide a way of salvation for all sinners. Since Calvinism restricts salvation only to the elect, it seems to require a less loving God. On the surface, at least, it seems that a non-Calvinist view provides an opportunity for vast numbers of people to be saved who would not be saved in the Calvinist view. Again, this question touches on matters that must be more fully developed in later chapters. For now, let me say simply that if the final decision for the salvation of fallen sinners were left in the hands of fallen sinners... We would despair of all hope that anyone would be saved. When we consider the relationship of a sovereign God to a fallen world, we are faced with basically four options. One, God could decide to provide no opportunity for anyone to be saved. Two, God could provide an opportunity for all to be saved. Three, God could intervene directly and ensure the salvation of all people. 4. God could intervene directly and ensure the salvation of some people. All Christians immediately rule out the first option. Most Christians rule out the third. We face the problem that God saves some and not all. Calvinism answers with the fourth option. The Calvinist view of predestination teaches that God actively intervenes in the lives of the elect to make absolutely sure that they are saved. Of course, the rest are invited to Christ and given an opportunity to be saved if they want to. But Calvinism assumes that without the intervention of God, no one will ever want Christ Left to themselves, no one will ever choose Christ. This is precisely the point of dispute. Non-reformed views of predestination assume that every fallen person is left with the capacity to choose Christ. Man is not viewed as being so fallen that it requires the direct intervention of God to the degree that calvinism asserts the non-reformed views all leave it in man's power to cast the deciding ballot for man's ultimate destiny in these views the best option is the second god provides opportunities for all to be saved but certainly the opportunities are not equal since vast multitudes of people die without ever hearing the gospel. The non-reformed person objects to the fourth option because it limits salvation to a select group which God chooses. The reformed person objects to the second option because he sees the universal opportunity for salvation as not providing enough to save anybody. The Calvinist sees God doing far more for the fallen human race through option four than through option two. The non-Calvinist sees just the reverse. He thinks that giving a universal opportunity, though it falls short of ensuring the salvation of anyone, is more benevolent than ensuring the salvation of some and not others. The nasty problem for the Calvinist is seen in the relationship of options 3 and 4. If God can, and does choose to ensure the salvation of some, why then does he not ensure the salvation of all? Before I try to answer that question, let me first point out that this is not just a Calvinist problem. Every Christian must feel the weight of this problem. We first face the question, does God have the power to ensure the salvation of everyone? Certainly is it is within God's power to change the heart of every impenitent sinner and bring that sinner to himself. If he lacks such power, then he is not sovereign. If he has that power, why doesn't he use it for everyone? The non-reformed thinker usually responds by saying that for God to impose his power on unwilling people is to violate man's freedom. To violate man's freedom is sin. Since God cannot sin, he cannot unilaterally impose his saving grace on unwilling sinners. To force the sinner to be willing when the sinner is not willing is to violate the sinner. The idea is that by offering the grace of the gospel, God does everything he can to help the sinner get saved. He has the raw power to coerce men, but the use of such power would be foreign to God's righteousness. That does not bring much comfort to the sinner in hell. The sinner in hell must be asking God, If you really loved me, why didn't you coerce me to believe? I would rather have had my free will violated than to be here in this eternal place of torment. Still, the pleas of the damned would not determine God's righteousness if, in fact, it would be wrong of God to impose himself on the will of men. The question the Calvinists asks is, What is wrong with God creating faith? In the heart of the sinner. God is not required to seek the sinner's permission for doing with the sinner what he pleases. The sinner didn't ask to be born in the country of his birth, to his parents, or even to be born at all. Nor did the sinner ask to be born with a fallen nature. All these things were determined by God's sovereign decision. If God does all this that affects the sinner's eternal destiny, what could possibly be wrong for him to go one more step to ensure his salvation? What did Jeremiah mean when he cried, O oh Lord, you have overwhelmed me, and I am overwhelmed? Jeremiah 27. Jeremiah certainly did not invite God to overwhelm him the question remains, why does God only save some? If we grant that God can save men by violating their wills, why then does he not violate everybody's will and bring them all to salvation? I'm using the word violate here not because I really think there is any wrongful violation, but because the non-Calvinist insists on the term. The only answer I can give to this question is that I don't know. I have no idea why God saves some, but not all. I don't doubt for a moment that God has the power to save all, but I know that he does not choose to save all. I don't know why. One thing I do know, if it pleases God to save some and not all, there is nothing wrong with that. God is not under obligation to save anybody. If he chooses to save some, that in no way obligates him to save the rest. Again, the Bible insists that it is God's divine prerogative to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. The hue and cry of the Calvinist usually hears at this point, Is that's not fair. But what I meant by fairness here, what is meant by fairness here? If by fair we mean equal, then of course the protest is accurate. God does not treat all men equally. Nothing could be clearer from the Bible than that. God appeared to Moses in a way that he did not appear to Hammurabi. God gave blessings to Israel that he did not give to Persia. Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus in a way he did not manifest himself to Pilate. God simply has not treated every human being in history in exactly the same manner. That much is obvious. Probably what is meant by fair in the protest is just. It does not seem just For God to choose some to receive his mercy, while others do not receive the benefit of it. To deal with this problem, we must do some close but very important thinking. Let us assume that all men are guilty of sin in the sight of God. From that mass of guilty humanity, God sovereignly decides to give mercy to some of them. What do the rest get? They get justice. The saved get mercy. And the unsaved get justice. Nobody gets injustice. Mercy is not justice, but neither is it injustice. Look at the following graphic. Justice, an empty circle beneath it. Non-justice, a circle filled with two things, mercy and injustice. Mercy over injustice. There is justice and there is non-justice. Non-justice includes everything outside of the category of justice. In the category of non-justice, we find two sub-concepts, injustice and mercy. Mercy is a good form of non-justice, while injustice is a bad form of non-justice. In the plan of salvation, God does nothing bad. He never commits an injustice. Some people get justice which is what they deserve, while other people get mercy. Again, the fact that one gets mercy does not demand that the others get it as well. God reserves the right to executive clemency. God reserves the right of executive clemency. As a human being, I might prefer that God give his mercy to everyone equally, but I may not demand it. If God is not pleased to dispense His saving mercy to all men, then I must submit to His holy and righteous decision. God is never, never, never obligated to be merciful to sinners. That is the point we must stress if we are to grasp the full measure of God's grace. The real question is why God is inclined to be merciful to anyone. His mercy is not required, yet He freely gives it to His elect. He gave it to Jacob in a way he did not give it to Esau. He gave it to Peter in a way he did not give it to Judas. We must learn to praise God both in his mercy and in his justice. When he executes his justice, he is doing nothing wrong. He is executing his justice according to his righteousness. God's sovereignty and human freedom. Every Christian gladly affirms that God is sovereign. God's sovereignty is a comfort to us. It assures us that he is able to do what he promises to do. But the bare fact of God's sovereignty raises one more big question. How is God's sovereignty related to human freedom? When we stand before the question of divine sovereignty and human freedom, the fight-or-flight dilemma may confront us. We might try to fight our way into a logical solution of it or take a turn and run as fast as we can from it. Many of us choose to flee from it. The flight takes different routes. The most common is simply to say that divine sovereignty and human freedom are contradictions that we must have to we, we must have the courage to embrace. We seek analogies that soothe our troubled minds. As a college student, I heard two analogies that gave me temporary relief, like a theological pack, package of Rolades. Analogy number one. God's sovereignty and human freedom are like parallel lines that meet in eternity. Analogy number two. God's sovereignty and human freedom are like ropes in a well. On the surface, they seem to be separate, but in the darkness at the bottom of the well, they come together. The first time I heard these analogies, I was relieved. They sounded simple yet profound. The idea of two parallel lines that meet in eternity satisfied me. It gave me something clever to say in the event that a hard-boiled skeptic asked me about divine sovereignty and human freedom. My relief was temporary. I soon required a stronger dose of Rolaids. The nagging question refused to go away. How, I wondered, can parallel lines ever meet? In eternity or anywhere else? If the lines meet, then they are not ultimately parallel. If they are ultimately parallel, then they will never meet. The more I thought about the analogy, the more I realized that it did not solve the problem. To say that parallel lines meet in eternity is a nonsense statement. It is a blatant contradiction. I don't like contradictions. I find little comfort in them. I never cease to be amazed at the ease with which Christians seem to be comfortable with them. I hear statements like, God is bigger than logic, or faith is higher than reason, to defend the use of contradictions in theology. I certainly agree that God is bigger than logic and that faith is higher than reason. I agree with all my heart and with all my head. What I want to avoid is a God who is smaller than logic and a faith that is lower than reason. A God who is smaller than logic would be and should be destroyed by logic. A faith that is lower than reason is irrational and absurd. I suppose it is the tension between divine sovereignty and human freedom more than any other issue that has driven many Christians to claim contradictions as a legitimate element of faith. The idea is that logic cannot reconcile divine sovereignty and human freedom. The two defy logical harmony. Since the Bible reaches both poles of the contradiction, we must be willing to affirm them both in spite of the fact that they are contradictory. God forbid for Christians to embrace both poles of a blatant contradiction is to commit intellectual suicide and to slander the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. God does not speak with a forked tongue. If human freedom and divine sovereignty are real contradictions, then one of them at least has to go. If sovereignty excludes freedom and freedom excludes sovereignty, then either God is not sovereign or man is not free. Happily, there is an alternative. We can keep both sovereignty and freedom if we can show that they are not contradictory. At a human level, we readily see that people can enjoy a real measure of freedom in a land ruled by a sovereign monarch. It is not freedom that is canceled out by sovereignty. It is autonomy that cannot coexist with sovereignty. What is autonomy? The word comes from the prefix auto and the root namas. Auto means self. An automobile is something that moves itself. Automatic describes something that is self-acting. The root namas is the Greek word for law. The word autonomy means then self-law. To be autonomous means to be a law unto oneself. An autonomous creature would be answerable to no one. He would have no governor, least of all a sovereign governor. It is logically impossible to have a sovereign God existing at the same time as an autonomous creature. The two concepts are utterly incompatible. To think of their coexistence would be like imagining the meeting of an immovable object and an irresistible force. What would happen? If the object moved, then it could no longer be considered immovable. If it failed to move, then the irresistible force would no longer be irresistible. So it is with sovereignty and autonomy. If God is sovereign, man cannot possibly be autonomous. If man is autonomous, God cannot possibly be sovereign. These would be contradictions. One does not have to be autonomous to be free. Autonomy implies absolute freedom. We are free, but there are limits to our freedom. The ultimate limit is the sovereignty of God. I once read a statement by a Christian who said, God's sovereignty can never restrict human freedom. Imagine a Christian thinker making such a statement. This is sheer humanism. Does the law of God place restrictions on human freedom? Is God not permitted to impose limits on what I may choose? Not only may God impose moral limits upon my freedom, but he has every right at any moment to strike me dead— If it is necessary to restrain me from exercising my evil choices, if God has no right of coercion, then he has no right of governing his creation. It is better that we reverse the the statement human freedom can never restrict the sovereignty of God. That is what sovereignty is all about. If God's sovereignty is restricted by man's freedom, then God is not sovereign. Man is sovereign. God is free. I am free. God is more free than I am. If my freedom runs up against God's freedom, I lose. His freedom restricts mine. My freedom does not restrict his. There is an analogy in the human family. I have free will. My children have free wills. When our wills clash, I have the authority to overrule their wills. Their wills are to be subordinate to my will. My will is not subordinate to theirs. Of course, at the human level of the analogy, we are not speaking in absolute terms. Divine sovereignty and human freedom are often thought to be contradictions because on the surface they sound contradictory. There are some important distinctions that must be made and consistently applied to this question if we are to avoid hopeless confusion. Let's consider three words in our vocabulary that are so closely related that they are often confused. 1. Contradiction. 2. Paradox. 3. Mystery. 1. Contradiction. The logical law of contradiction says that a thing cannot be what it is and not be what it is at the same time and in the same relationship. A man can be a father and a son at the same time, but he cannot be a man and not be a man at the same time. A man can be both a father and a son at the same time, but not in the same relationship. No man can be his own father. Even when we speak of Jesus as the God-man, we are careful To say that, though he is God and man at the same time, he is not God and man in the same relationship. He has a divine nature and a human nature. They are not to be confused. Contradictions can never coexist, not even in the mind of God. If both poles of a genuine contradiction could be true in the mind of God, then nothing God ever revealed to us could possibly have any meaning. If good and evil, justice and injustice, righteousness and unrighteousness, Christ and antichrist could all mean the same thing to God's mind, then truth of any kind would be utterly impossible. 2. Paradox A paradox is an apparent contradiction that upon closer scrutiny can be resolved. I have heard teachers declare that the Christian notion of the Trinity is a contradiction, It simply is not. It violates no law of logic. It passes the objective test of the law of contradiction. God is one in essence and three in person. There is nothing contradictory about that. If we said that God was one in essence and three in essence, then we would have a bona fide contradiction that no one could resolve then Christianity would be hopelessly irrational and absurd. The Trinity is a paradox, but not a contradiction. Fogging things up even further is another term, antinomy. 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 Its primary meaning is a synonym for contradiction, but its secondary meaning is a synonym for paradox. Upon examination, we see that it has the same root as autonomy, namas, which means law. Here, the prefix is anti, anti, which means against or instead of. Thus, the literal meaning of the term antinomy, antinomy is against law. What law do you suppose is in view here? the law of contradiction the original meaning of the term was that which violates the law of contradiction hence originally and in normal philosophical discussion the word antinomy is an exact equivalent of the word contradiction confusion creeps in when people use the term antinomy i don't because i hadn't heard the word until now Not to refer to a genuine contradiction, but to a paradox or apparent contradiction. We remember that a paradox is a statement that seems like a contradiction but actually isn't. In Great Britain, especially, the word antinomy is often used as a synonym for paradox. I labor these fine distinctions for two reasons. The first is that if we are to avoid confusion, we must have a clear idea in our minds of the crucial difference between a real contradiction and a seeming contradiction. It is the difference between rationality and irrationality, between truth and absurdity. The second reason that it is necessary to state these definitions clearly, is that one of the greatest defenders of the doctrine of predestination in our world today uses the term antinomy. I am thinking of the outstanding theologian, Dr. J. I. Packer. Packer has helped countless thousands of people come to a deeper understanding of the character of God, especially with regard to God's sovereignty. I have never discussed this matter of Dr. Packer's use of the term antinomy with him. I assume he is using it in the British sense of paradox. I cannot imagine that he means to speak of actual contradictions in the word of God. In fact, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he labors the point that there are no ultimate contradictions in the truth of God. Dr. Packer has not only been tireless in his defense of Christian theology, but has been equally tireless in his brilliant defense of the inerrancy of the Bible. If the Bible contained antinomies in the sense of real contradictions, that would be the end of inerrancy. Some people actually do hold that there are real contradictions in divine truth. They think inerrancy is compatible with them. Inerrancy would then mean that the Bible inerrantly reveals the contradictions in God's truth. Of course, a moment's thought would make clear that if God's truth is contradictory truth, it is no truth at all. Indeed, the very word truth would be emptied of meaning. If contradictions can be true, we would have no possible way of discerning the difference between truth and a lie. This is why I am convinced that Dr. Packer uses antimony to mean paradox and not contradiction. Three, mystery. The term mystery refers to that which is true, but which we do not understand. The Trinity, for example, is a mystery. I cannot penetrate the mystery of the Trinity or of the incarnation of Christ with my feeble mind. Such truths are too high for me. I know that Jesus was one person with two natures, but I don't understand how that can be. The same kind of thing is found in the natural realm. Who understands the nature of gravity or even of motion? Who has penetrated the ultimate mystery of life? What philosopher has plumbed the depths of the meaning of the human self? These are mysteries. They are not contradictions. It is easy to confuse mystery and contradiction. We do not understand either of them. No one understands a contradiction because contradictions are intrinsically unintelligible. Not even God can understand a contradiction. Contradictions are nonsense. No one can make sense out of them. Mysteries are capable of being understood. The New Testament reveals to us things that were concealed and not understood in Old Testament times. There are things that once were mysterious to us that are now understood. This does not mean that everything that is presently a mystery to us will one day be made clear, but that many current mysteries will be unraveled for us. Some will be penetrated in this world. We have not yet reached the limits of human discovery. We know also that in heaven, things will be revealed to us that are still hidden. But even in heaven, we will not grasp fully the meaning of infinity. To understand that fully, one must himself be infinite. God can understand infinity, not because he operates on the basis of some kind of heavenly logic system, but because he himself is infinite. He has an infinite perspective. Let me state it another way. All contradictions are mysterious. Not all mysteries are contradictions. Christianity has plenty of room for mysteries. It has no room for contradictions. Mysteries may be true. Contradictions can never be true. Neither here in our minds nor there in God's mind. The big issue remains The grand debate that stirs the cauldron of controversy centers on the question, what does predestination do to our free will? We will examine that issue in the next chapter. Summary of Chapter 2 1. Definition of Predestination Predestination means that our final destination, heaven or hell, is decided by God before we are even born. 2. God's Sovereignty God is supreme authority of heaven and earth. 3. God is supreme power. All other authority and power are under God. 4. If God is not sovereign, he is not God. 5. God exercises his sovereignty in such a way that it does no evil and violates no human freedom. 6. Man's first act of sin is a mystery. That God allowed men to sin does not reflect badly upon God. 7. All Christians face the difficult question of why God, who theoretically could save everybody, chooses to save some but not all. 8. God does not owe salvation to anyone. 9. God's mercy is voluntary. He is not obligated to be merciful. He reserves the right to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. And there's the diagram of justice above a circle and non-justice above a circle with mercy and injustice inside that circle. 10. God's sovereignty and man's freedom are not contradictory. End of chapter 2.